So we've uh, begun this whole thing this fall with the opening picture of the Beatitudes that Jesus gives at the beginning of Matthew 5. He has these big, big ideas where he says, if you have a poverty of spirit within you, he says, I call you blessed. He says, if you are grieving some profound loss, if you've not been able to keep your hands on a dream or a hope or a relationship or something that you had held to that's no longer there, and it might actually be the life of a loved one. He says, if you are grieving, he says, I call you blessed. He says, if you are meek, if you just don't have it in you to take what you need for yourself, I call you blessed. And he says, if you are hungering and thirsting, if you are aching, if you are desperate for things to be made right within you or around you, he says, I call you blessed, which is absurd, except for what he says right alongside that, which is yours is the kingdom of God, which is to say, perhaps, that the kingdom of God is so good and so generous and so available that it can overcome and overwhelm any deficit of circumstance or character or spirit. So we sat with that, like that big idea, and I've, I've been meditating on those words for years, and I've been studying them, and I've been reading thoughts about those words, and I've been preaching those words, and they feel hopeful and theological and spiritual and kind of abstract, but also really like real for my life, and I get really excited about that, and it's moving me, and then there's the rest of my life. Like, that doesn't feel anywhere near proximate to those big promises. I don't know if you've been there, like, um, like on Instagram. <laughs> Like, uh, like a while ago, uh, I know a few of you heard this story a long time ago, but a while ago when I was tracking down somebody who I admire on Instagram, and what I'll do when I admire somebody's work is I'll go look at who they follow, right? I want to see like, who's inspiring them, who's teaching them, who's, who's informing them. So I'm looking at this particular person whose work I admire, and I go to look at who they follow, and I'm kind of taking notes. Maybe I should follow some of the same people. And then I see that they don't follow me which doesn't mean anything. There's no reason they would follow me. They've never met me, in fact. But I take note of the fact that they don't follow me. And then I realize that they follow somebody that I know. It's a friend of mine who's far less impressive than me. <laughs> and then I start getting all of these dark energies and feelings bubbling up inside. And I start thinking that friend of mine, who's not nearly as impressive as me, not only are they not as impressive as me, but they're actually kind of a terrible person. And if this person knew that they were a terrible person, maybe they wouldn't follow them anymore. Maybe we should find a way to slip a little note to this person I admire because there's no reason that they should be following my friend. Anybody been there? Maybe not on Instagram. Uh, I want to talk actually about that. I want to talk about this peculiar intersection between the big, grandiose, uh, massive claims that Jesus is making about the promise of God's kingdom and the difference it can make in the face of all of our deficits. I want to talk about that right alongside the everyday world that we are living in and wrestling with and the, the sort of inner turmoil that we are facing in God's world. And the reason I want to talk all about that is if you look at the ways that Jesus teaches us to think about the kingdom of God, if you look at the pictures of the kingdom of God that Jesus gives us, and you, and you look closely and you listen and you sit with him for a moment, you might discover that he seems to be aware that that tension is real for us, that there's this generous and available kingdom, this promising gift from God, and yet at the same time, we are these knotted up, uh, sort of twisted, um, difficult sort of energies all at the same time, right? Uh, I want to look at that, and especially at a place in Matthew. This is Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 25. Uh, so we're going to do some Bible work. You guys up for it? 
Yeah? Okay, awesome. Right on. Uh, so uh, Matthew Gospel 25, uh, chapter here, is what's technically called the eschatological discourse, which is just fancy words for saying this is the part of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is talking about where the big story is going and what will be revealed when we see where the story is going. Does that make sense? When we talk about eschatology, we're talking about a picture of where things are going or a picture that reveals the way things really are. And this whole chapter is called the eschatological discourse because Jesus is doing all of that. And Matthew, as a writer, has brought all these things together. So Matthew 25 begins with Jesus saying, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Okay, so that's the framing. The story is going somewhere. The kingdom of heaven is the picture he keeps trying to give us, and he seems to be saying it will be revealed in a certain way. It'll be known in a certain way, experienced in a certain way. So let's see what he points at. And I'm going to skip to the, the, the second picture of the kingdom that he gives us under that heading. This is chapter 25, verse 14. And Jesus tells a story or a parable. He says, again, it, being the kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Listen to this. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has, been, has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To quote Anchorman, that escalated quickly. <laughs> I want to uh, unpack this for a moment with you guys, okay? Um, some of you might have heard this parable before. It's sometimes called the parable of the talents. And instead of bags of gold, it's sometimes translated as talents. Anybody ever heard some reference to this or heard this read or taught, right? Yeah. Um, it's a challenging parable. It takes an edge at the end there. There's judgment in it. It raises questions of justice and fairness. There's a lot to wrestle with here. So much so, in fact, that one commentator, a guy named Klein Snodgrass, which is one of the better names I've seen in the field, Klein Snodgrass says this. Many people do not like these parables. 
I highlighted that in my commentary. <laughs> that's the only thing I highlighted from him. But anyway, that's what his commentary says. Many people do not like these parables because uh, there's a hard edge on this thing, right? It's kind of difficult. It's kind of uncomfortable in, in the turns that it takes here. But I just want to see if we can open it up, see if it has anything to, to say to us today. The talents thing, let me just disclaim that for a second. So talent happens to be a word that we use in the year 2018 in the English language to talk about uh, some sort of maybe natural raw ability that you sort of have a proclivity toward that you just kind of you tend to be good at those kinds of things we call that a talent right well it's sort of perhaps an unfortunate coincidence that um, talent is also a, a way of describing something in the first century that has nothing to do with that um, which is why this translation calls it bags of gold because it's a way of measuring a weighty metal store of wealth you know those big gold bricks that you picture in Fort Knox it's, it's pointing to something more like that. And I think for a lot of preachers, the temptation is to just preach this right toward talent because the wordplay works. And I'm not saying this doesn't have some application point about taking the talents God's given you and doing something with them. I'm just saying, hold on for a second because I think there's a lot more going on here and I'm not really sure that's the center of the picture of God's kingdom that Jesus is giving us here. So let's observe what we actually have going on here, right? Uh, there's this turn of phrase at the very beginning. The master wanted to entrust his wealth to his servants. The master wanted to entrust his wealth to his servants. And then when he comes back and checks in on them, it seems the one thing that offends him is they didn't play ball. The one who didn't get in on the action it seems like the one thing that offends him, right? So we have rampant generosity. Uh, the metrics here, the one bag of gold is something like uh, 6,000 denarii, which is 20 years earnings for a day, a day worker in the first century. So 20 years of earnings for like a minimum wage employee in that time and place. This is rampant generosity. This is a flagrant generosity. The master wanted to entrust his wealth to his servants. You have generosity. You have trust you have an invitation to participate. The master's saying, hey, here's what I have. You want to do something with it? Like, I want to trust it to you. I want to give it to you. So you have all those things going on. And then you have this one peculiar servant. Uh, it's fascinating to me that the opening picture we get of the master is rampant generosity. And this one servant who does nothing with the gift sees the master as greedy, corrupted, cynical, stingy, even evil. And it raises all sorts of questions for me. One of the things about the parables is you got to work with them. Jesus is a, is a complex, three-dimensional, he's a deep teacher. When he puts you into the world of this story, I don't know that we read everything at face value. I think we ask ourselves, what's going on under the surface there? This is clearly a generous master. He wanted to entrust his wealth to his servants. He wanted to give his riches to the lowliest in his workforce. That's the opening picture of the master. And then we read about one person who does nothing with the gift. And he has a cynical view of the master. And then he ends up where? On the outside looking in. He ends up on the outside looking in. Jesus says, I want to give you a picture of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, it's like a situation where it seems like someone else has the blessing the other two servants, right? The two bags of gold and the five bags of gold. And we have some decisions to make about what we're going to do about it. 
Now, I want to build my case here for a little bit, because I see some of you looking at me like, really, is that what this thing is about? Fair. I want to make my case, okay? Uh, first of all, I want to argue that if you read the scriptures uh, widely, you might discover this is a recurring issue, that there is um, a generous God in, who's giving God's self to us and giving God's kingdom to us, and that human beings keep finding themselves in situations where we look to our right or our left, and we see something that looks like an inequity or an imbalance or an inequality around us somewhere, and it translates back into cynical hearts that turn dark and break the world even more. This is, I think, actually a recurring theme in Scripture. For example, a throwback to a passage that we looked at uh, earlier in our church history as we looked at the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. Now, um, Genesis chapter 4, interestingly, is the first time in the entire Bible that the word sin is mentioned. Now, if you have a little bit of biblical literacy, you might know that Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve in the garden where they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat with the serpent and the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and all that stuff. So Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve and eating the fruit happens. And the word sin is never mentioned in Genesis 3. It never occurs in that story. The word sin first shows up in Genesis chapter 4 where we read this. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now what's going on here? Well, some people have read this narrative and uh, they've done some historical work and they've observed that at the time that Genesis is being compiled, it seems that there's developing in the society around the Genesis text a preference for shepherds over farmers. There's like a cultural, societal sort of elevation of the status of shepherds over farmers. And they wonder if this text is nodding to that because it's the shepherd who brings animal portions to the sacrifice upon whom God looks with favor. And it's the person who brings... Uh, food from the earth, right, like from his farming that doesn't get that favor thing going on. So that's a theory that often gets put out there. It's not uncommon to hear preachers press into the thing about Abel bringing the fat portion, which seems to maybe suggest fat portion, the firstborn of his flock. We get those modifiers, those superlative descriptions of, of Abel's sacrifice. In Cain's sacrifice, we just get, oh yeah, and he brought uh, some other stuff. So I've heard preachers lean into like, Abel brought the best of his sacrifice. He trusted God more and God looked on that with favor. Uh, maybe you've heard those theories. Only problem is, I can't find a single scholar or commentator, either Jewish or Christian, who's worth their salt, who affirms any of those theories. In fact, when I actually dig into the consensus, uh, the better thinkers that I've learned to trust because they seem to be reliable in their work, they all say the same thing. They say all of those are red herrings. Those are distractions. They say this text, in fact, intentionally withholds any logic about why God looks on Abel with favor. Why? They say because this is a story about what will you do when it seems like somebody else has the blessing. This is a story about what will you do when it seems like somebody else has the blessing. It's interesting, by the way. It doesn't say that God rejected Cain. It doesn't say that God was against Cain. It doesn't say that God hated Cain or looked down on Cain. It just, it is a neutral statement. 
but we get this generosity given to Abel. God looked on Abel with favor, and then we get a neutral statement. That particular favor was not shown to Cain. We don't get any idea of how they knew God had favor or how that was experienced or felt. So you get generosity and neutrality, and Cain gets angry. Then we keep reading here. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The scholars say this is a story about what will you do when someone else has the blessing. The word sin is first mentioned in Scripture in a moment where there's two different people both approaching God the master. And the one looks to his right and it appears that there is greater favor for his brother than there is for him. And it's in that moment that sin enters the Bible's description of the world that we are living in today. And Jesus tells a story about a master who wants to entrust his wealth to the servants. And the three servants find themselves entrusted with different degrees of that wealth, different amounts of that generosity. The whole problem, by the way, the whole problem is created by the generosity of God, right? The whole setup for the whole thing is that God is being generous in the parable. And we have one of these characters who is given 20 years day wages and looks to his right and sees the one who got twice as much and the one who got five times as much I can't help but wonder if something just starts to sour inside him because he doesn't realize how generous God has been to him. And that's the person who ends up on the outside looking in. Now, maybe you think I'm stretching it. Let me keep making my case. Jesus tells another story that's perhaps a bit more popular, a bit more famous. You've heard this one before, perhaps. Jesus tells a story about another generous master. In this case, it's a father. Father has a wealthy estate. And one of his sons, the younger son, comes to the father and says, I want my half of the inheritance now. So the father generously goes ahead and gives half of the inheritance to the son. The son goes out and squanders it and then comes back crawling on his knees, hoping to be welcomed back into his father's household, perhaps as a servant or a slave. The father says none of that, puts his arms around him, puts a robe on him, throws a party for him. Big, old, elaborate, extravagant, expensive feast for the younger son. And there's there's a little caveat at the end of the story that some people argue is the whole reason Jesus told it. Because there's an older brother who's watching all of this, and the father realizes the older brother is on the outside of the party looking in. I picture him with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed, and the father goes out to the older brother and says, hey, what are you, what are you doing out here? And the, and the older brother, he complains about this whole scenario. He says, well, like, this kid, this, this, this guy, like, he has squandered the wealth, and now he, you welcome him back like this, and he, he doesn't want any part of the father's generosity toward the younger son. And the father says, don't you know you're always with me? Don't you know all I have is yours? The elder brother was never in danger of missing out on the father's generosity, but he misses it because he looks to the generosity being lavished on the younger brother. And who ends up on the outside looking in at the end of that story? The older brother, who is not being withheld of the father's generosity, but looked at the younger brother and saw how good the father was being to him And again, Jesus tells a story about somebody ending up on the outside looking in, and it seems it's because sometimes we miss sight of how good God is. And I wonder if we're the ones who walk away. I wonder if we are the ones who choose to be on the outside of the party looking in because we just can't handle what what we see when it looks like somebody else has the blessing. Now, 
quick caveat. I'm not talking about um, systemic injustice or social inequality right now, okay? I'm not talking about the good and holy work of, of pushing back against some of the inequities that are in our world and trying to make the world more just and more good. I'm not talking about that per se, but I do want to suggest that the energies we bring to that kind of work can either be rooted in what's wrong in the world or those energies can be rooted in what is right in God. Our desire for justice can be most deeply rooted in what is wrong in the world or our desire for justice can be deeply rooted in the generosity of God because we see that it's in God's heart and it's part of the world that God wants. And then we might look around at our life and ask ourselves if we've missed some way that God has been generous to us and if we've allowed something to sour in us, something to turn toxic within us when we let God's generosity to somebody else on our right or our left cause us to miss out on the fact that God has always been good to us too. Um, this apparently is not just uh, something uh, that shows up in the parables of ancient wisdom in the scriptures. Uh, it appears that human beings are mostly incapable of working this out on our own. <laughs> Uh, there's a political economist named Francis Fukuyama. I was listening to him recently. Uh, Francis Fukuyama uh, describes what he calls positional well-being. And he says, quoting the work of another economist, um, that human beings seem virtually unable to experience well-being or happiness or satisfaction. We simply are able to experience positional well-being or, or happiness or satisfaction. Uh, as I've heard him talk about it, another word that helps me is comparative. That we don't really know if we have well-being or happiness or satisfaction or if we've been blessed or if things are good. That our brains are hardwired to simply ask ourselves, do we have more well-being, more happiness, more satisfaction, more good things coming our way than somebody on our right and our left? If we do good, if we don't, bad. And the case study that he points to is another economist who did a little case study uh, looking at two different places in the world that had dramatically different standards of living. So uh, the countries that they cite in the example are Nigeria and Germany. So Germany has a much higher overall economic standard of living for everyone there than Nigeria. But what they did is they went to Nigeria and they, through testing or surveys or whatever, they measured the, the self-assessment of happiness, well-being, satisfaction, whatever, among the bottom 10% of, of earners or economically resourced people in Nigeria. And then they measure those same things among those in the top 10% of economic well-being uh, or prosperity in Nigeria. So you take that data set, and then they go to Germany, where everybody's doing better than most of the people in Nigeria. And they measure in Germany, the bottom 10% of the people in that country, and they ask them, what are your experiences of well-being, of satisfaction, of happiness? And then they go to the top 10% of the wage earners or the resourced people in Germany, and they ask them, what are your experiences of well-being or satisfaction or happiness? They get that set, they put it side by side, and they discover that practically perfectly, it doesn't matter at all what your means are. It simply matters where you fall in your immediate context because the people at the bottom 10% in Nigeria rate their satisfaction or happiness exactly the same as the people at the bottom 10% living in Germany, even though those people in Germany are experiencing far more economic well-being than those people in Nigeria. We seem virtually incapable of knowing what we have that's good, where we've been blessed, when some generosity has struck our lives. And Jesus seems to be saying, that's not just a sociological thing. That's not just a a thing that we should worry about for the world that we're building materially, it seems like he's saying this is a deeply spiritual thing. He seems to be saying the kingdom of God uh, is going to raise questions for you about whether you know God's generosity when it looks like he's been generous to somebody else. 
And the warning language here with Jesus, and this is probably another sermon for another time, but uh, I don't take Jesus' warning language to be so much about imposed consequences as about intrinsic consequences, about this is just what happens when you let your envy, your jealousy, the perceived inequality around you sour your perception of God's generosity or goodness toward you, you might find yourself on the outside looking in. And like the older brother, I don't know that it's God kicking you out. It might be us opting out. Because somewhere along the line, the master who was so generous that he wanted to entrust his wealth to us became through our lenses stingy, greedy, even corrupt. Now, um, to me, that calls not just for a good picture, but for some practices. And so uh, I wanted to propose today a couple of questions that might lead us into some practices that align with this picture of the kingdom that Jesus is giving us here. I want to propose a couple of questions that might lead to some practices. The first one is this. Where does your soul know the generosity of God? Where does your soul know the generosity of God? Here, I don't just mean, does your brain theoretically affirm that God is good or kind? I mean, where does your soul know the generosity of God? You might ask, when's the last time your soul was telling you, I know something of the generosity of God. I know something of the unending kindness of God. If you kind of flip back through your memory for a bit, could you find a... Is there a community of people that you spend time with and your soul knows the generosity of God? Is it your family? Are there places that you go to? Uh, for me, one of the places my soul knows the generosity of God is any place where I'm hearing beautiful music. Um, I love lots of music. I enjoy lots of kinds of music. I wouldn't call all of it beautiful. Um, and I like being entertained, and I like music that helps me have a good workout, and I like interesting music and all of that. But I'm speaking specifically for me, uh, music that, that just strikes me as staggeringly beautiful. Uh, so sometimes I'll kind of turn everything off except for the speaker, you know, and I'll sit and I'll listen for a long time to music that's beautiful. And sometimes it's like, it's like I can feel something expanding in my chest. And it, it might have a cognitive component. It might be rational, but it's not just rational. There's something um, like more deeply buried inside me that seems like it's sort of being spoken to in those moments. And so I, so I try to proactively turn to that. And then there's this savor it. Because I think my job in those moments when my soul senses something about the generosity of God who creates a world where beauty is possible, something where my soul is saying to the rest of me, Oh yeah, this is a little taste of something that's just true of God, that God is just lending God's being to the world always and creating the possibilities of beauty that are being realized right now. My job then is to tell myself, trust that. It's not just telling me something about the music. It's pointing to something that's always been true and will always be true. It's something enduring and reliable. My job is to savor it. My job is to tell myself, trust that. By the way, again, another sermon for another time. We've pointed at this in the past. Just like a really strong consensus today that our brains are bad at savoring good things and they're wired for threat recognition. So you have a couple of moments during the day when things feel scarce, which feels like a threat. Your brain just grabs them, holds on to them, owns them, claims them, right? You have some moments where your soul knows the generosity of God. You might need to give them more time to get a hold of your brain. That's just the way these sort of animalistic brains of ours work. Savor it. Uh, another place for me where my soul knows the generosity of God 
uh, is when I go to the woods. So I have a, a woods that I go to. Uh, it's just a, a county park, but I go there and walk around on my day off. It's a deep enough, big enough woods that I can kind of get lost in there and feel like I'm away from everything. And I go there because I need to be someplace where there's life all around me and none of it needs me. You know what I mean? Like there's energy, there's, a, there's this kind of abundant thing going on all around me and it's sort of giving itself away and it doesn't want anything from me. And so I walk through the woods and I, I try to slow my breathing down and I try to sort of absorb and connect with everything I'm seeing. I remember uh, just a few weeks ago, I was doing one of my walks and this is one of those walks where I actually like, I was kind of getting stuck in my head because the quiet just meant I was getting more and more knotted up on a problem I was working on. And then I hit like three spider webs because I wasn't paying it. Like I'm just walking along and like, you know, the way the tree, I just like walked with my face into a spider web. Yeah, so, so I'm kind of like, I'm kind of tensed up, right? My energy is not that great. And then out of the corner of my eye, again, I'm, I'm, not, really, I'm not really present there. I'm, I'm working on this stuff up here. And out of the corner of my eye, I see what I think is a person. And I just get really scared because I'm like, has there been a person there the whole time? And are they stalking me? So I get this real fear response, this threat response, and then I realize it's a whole herd of deer, this, this beautiful herd of deer. And I stop, and they've frozen for a second, and then they see me, and then they, they move quite quickly, but just absolutely, like, silently, right, like, flawlessly, like, like gracefully. They just sort of start bounding away. And that broke me out of this sort of uh, negative, tense, scarce fearful kind of thing that was going on inside. And it's like in that moment, my soul knew the generosity of God. God who is always lending God's being to the universe. God who is making anything that is alive, alive with every moment, every instant of the day, right? And so you're in the, in the woods and there's just all of this life everywhere for at least another week, you know? <laughs> another winter's coming. But, uh, you know, there's all this life everywhere. And I go there to remind my soul of the generosity of God, and I go there to savor it. So sometimes I make myself, like, I will, I'll, I'll just, like, rub a leaf in my hand, like, so I can have some tactile sort of connection to it. I've been known to put my hand on a tree. I don't hug them, but I've been known to put my hand on a tree and just try to bring my body and my brain to the experience and to savor it, and then to proactively tell myself that thing that my soul is sensing right now about the generosity of God, it's always true. Oh, and it's always been true toward me, right? You too, but I'm not talking about you right now. Me, like it's always been true toward me, right? So, uh, so I would ask you, what kind of practice would that question point you toward? If you sat with this tonight for a moment, maybe you know right now, or maybe you need to sit with it for a bit. Where does your soul know the generosity of God? Could you proactively go to those places and could you savor what your soul knows in those places or communities or experiences, right? And then a second question. If this is about a generous master who wants to entrust his wealth to his servants so they could get in on the action, so they could do the kinds of things that he does, so that they could sort of pay it forward or expand it or do more with it, which is the heart of the servants who do the right thing, right? Then I would ask this, what could you give away? Because sometimes giving is the thing that actually helps us find our lives relocated in the current of God's generosity. I'm not necessarily saying you give so you can get. I'm not doing like a prosperity thing. I'm not tapping into that right now. I'm just saying, just the, what would it do in your heart, in your soul, in your body, in your life to give something away? And it's your way of saying, I know this is what the master is always like. 
For some, it might be money. It might be um, you need to write a check. Find some worthwhile organization. Church, um, you might want to... You might want to uh, find a neighbor in need. Uh, maybe you have like a person in your life that you're really close with. Thank you for knowing I'm joking about that kind of a thing. Um, maybe it's a person that you know is in need. And maybe you want to anonymously be radically generous. Maybe you want to uh, get a gift card so they can buy groceries for the week. Or maybe you want to just slip them a check or something. I don't know, but could you give something away? For some, it's not money for a couple of reasons. Um, it may be that legitimately, like, you just have no means of being financially generous right now. That's great. You have other things to give. Everybody has um, something so beautiful to give the world. Um, for some, giving time away would actually be the scary thing. Because maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the giving money away is easy. It doesn't really take a lot of you, maybe. But maybe giving time away would be, like, the really risky thing for you right now. And maybe you would do it saying, this is so I can remind myself that this is actually the way things are. Like, generosity is actually the way God is, which means it's actually the way things are, right? Maybe it's uh, emotional vulnerability. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe, like, you have that inner world that's just really hard for you to share with anyone. Maybe some difficult experiences have taught you to protect that. And by the way, I would affirm on some levels protecting that. Um, I think boundaries are good, and if people have proven unsafe, I don't think you should pretend they are safe, but... The thing is, whether it's money or time or your emotional story or whatever, I suspect that if, if you think about giving something away and you feel some anxiety about it and you dig down like a few layers deep underneath the sort of thing that's right in front of your face, if you ask yourself, what is that anxiety? Where is it coming from? I think Jesus is saying some part of it might be, something going on in there might be that your heart isn't certain about the generosity of God, isn't certain that there will be enough. Enough what? I don't know. But isn't certain there will be enough. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like a world where some people understand the generosity of the master and some people don't. And he has some difficult words for all of us to chew on about what happens to us when we lose sight of the generosity of the master. Uh, I also asked the team then if we could um, sing together one more time for a moment. And I actually think that for a community to sing to one another, it's one of the reasons we sit in the round, by the way, um, I think actually to sing to one another can be a profound gift. For some, it feels just vulnerable to sing. I get that. And I'm actually trying to make a case right now that you should sing. Um, I really mean that. It's, it's, it's one of the, when, when this community sings, um, there's, a, there's like a palpable generosity in the spirit in this room. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you're not one of the ones who loves to sing, but you felt it. When this community sings to one another, even that is a way of giving something away to one another. And so um, the song we've been kind of singing through this series, it just seems so appropriate today. So why don't you stand to your feet if you're able, and uh, Zach and Dan will lead us in it. Hope is in the Lord 
your eyes on him the kingdom is yours the kingdom is yours hold on a little more this is not the end hope is in the lord One last time, hold on, hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. The master wanted to entrust his wealth to his servants. May your soul know the generosity of God. May you savor it. May you give something away. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.